0: From Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. I'm Brian Walsh, head of impact for the fintech company, LiquidNet, coming to you from New York City. Also in New York is Imogen Rose-Smith, an investment fellow with the University of California. Hello, Imogen. Hi, Brian. And joining us from Impact Alpha's world headquarters in the San Francisco Bay Area is David Bank, editor and CEO of Impact Alpha. Hi, David. Hey, you two. Good to be with you both. On today's show, Paris is burning. Not really, but the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement may be burning up. Governments are again gathered, this time in Poland, to chart a path forward and avert the worst-case scenarios for climate catastrophe. A range of recent reports suggest the situation is dire. They make clear a few things. One, climate change is already here. Two, it's going to get worse. Three, it's going to cost a lot. And yet, four, we can still do something about it. David, what is going on in Katowice, Poland? Brian, the
1: annual gathering known as the COP, the Conference of the Parties, is now this year in in Poland, as you say, in Katowice. Um, uh, two years ago, well, three years ago, it was in Paris. So Paris was COP twenty one. Poland this year is COP24. I recall COP22 and when I went to Marrakesh, and actually Imogen went to Marrakesh as well, and there was a huge wave of enthusiasm as that meeting approached, not just for going, being able to go to Marrakesh, but because this was going to be the follow-on to the Paris agreement and uh, the world was going to uh, ramp up its ambitions to uh, cut carbon and make the transition. And literally in the middle of that meeting, people were already in Marrakesh the U.S. elections happened and Donald Trump was elected and it was like the 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 event was like smacked on the side of the head with a two by four. But the optimists tried to carry the day and say that the momentum was strong and the market would carry us forward. Falling costs of solar and wind and, and additional benefits of clean air and everything was going to carry the efforts forward. And people have tried mightily in the last two years to make that so but the pessimists at the time were saying no you know the, the headwinds will be strong and i would say you know you have to, you know we can get into this you know how you know you know where we should be on the on the glass half full empty scale you know uh <laughs> drinking game <laughs> how many drinks we need the but um but things have stalled i mean the you know as as you said the, these reports um uh, uh, say that the the both the Climate effects are getting worse. Carbon is back on the rise after a sort of lull or, or a, it could have been a peak, but a lull. So carbon actually is rising, not decreasing like we need it to. And then to top it off, the capital is not really moving. Uh, uh, we can get into those numbers. But we're, we are, as you said, in a dire situation.
0: Yeah. And, and Joseph Curran is a senior fellow at the Institute for International European Affairs. He, he calls this the Trump effect and that, that it's curtailing the momentum uh, that had been building out of the Paris agreement. Uh, and He puts it in three three buckets. So one is that Trump's proposed rollbacks make legacy fossil fuel investments more attractive all over the world. The second piece is that Trump's decision to withdraw from Paris has created that moral and political cover for other governments to follow suit. And finally, these international negotiations really require a lot of goodwill and trust and good faith. And that's been kind of permanently damaged because of his actions. So Imogen, uh, you are usually our uh, lovable curmudgeon, but bring us some optimism. Can the capital markets ride to the rescue and help save uh, our, our shared climate?
2: You know, I, I've I've never heard David be so pessimistic. Um and it, and it is it is not without good reason. Um but it, yeah, I was I was in Marrakesh during the election and COP twenty two as well, and it was I've not like it was a very strange experience just to sort of feel the the atmosphere completely change and, and the enthusiasm just completely leave sort of the room and again no surprise i I feel like the people that i was hanging out with were far less optimistic than the people that david was hanging out with there was a real sense that we had this one shot to fix things and now at the very least that was hanging in the balance and potentially being taken away from us am i more optimistic than david maybe um i do think that the capital markets are going to play a role are playing a role in tackling the climate crisis can they do enough and can they do enough quickly enough is is going to be the ultimate question you you are seeing actors step up you are seeing more and more investment opportunities for example um power purchasing agreements right so corporations going out and committing to renewable energies is is a huge trend and it's very attractive to large large asset owners as well so i think that investors are getting more interested in the opportunities around climate change and you are starting to see commitments that's different from saying that you know our consumption of fossil fuel has gone down um you know
1: can i can i break can i can i break in here
2: on the optimism (laughs) side go for it (laughs) i was i was struggling because (laughs)
0: <laughs> I could tell you were reaching. This is, um, this is a, a, the, a new the... muscle for uh, Imogen to, to stretch. There, it's trying on optimism. First,
1: first, first of all, I want to say for the record that I am a, you know, I'm an official. I, I'm an, a card-carrying optimist. It, it's an occupational requirement for this for this business, I believe. And I and I, and I have this line that that I think is true, which is, you know, optimism may or may not be self-fulfilling, but. Pessimism certainly is self-fulfilling because market sentiment is crucial here, which is if you think the world is going to hell, like we just sort of basically documented, then there's may or may not be even less incentive for you, you, institutional investor, you big major corporation, you, you you know, even policymaker to buck that trend. And what we really need to say is that, in fact, you know, even though, you know, skies are, are cloudy now the long-term future you wanna be part of is the low carbon, zero carbon, negative carbon future. That's a huge investment opportunity that early movers are gonna you know, be disproportionately advantaged there. And what we're gonna see, we hope, is a split in the establishment effectively and we're already seeing it where some oil companies are at least nominally making bets on electric vehicle charging stations or what have you and and they're and they're moving in that direction you know banks as you say are making commitments to green financing you know utilities whatnot so there's in every sector there are leaders on this low carbon transition and there are laggards And the question, actually, I put it to you, Imogen, is will the leaders be rewarded for their leadership and will the laggards be punished or, you know, perversely, will the laggards be rewarded?
2: I mean, yeah, not necessarily, right? It's not clear that the leaders necessarily will be rewarded. And I think that we tend to talk about climate change in these big generalist assumptions. And I think that's a massive oversimplification, right? So... You know if we talk about so shell just came out with their new climate policy they're going to tie executive compensation to carbon reduction which is a huge deal you know exxon continues to be on the other side where they say no we don't need to change our business model la 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 go away and it's going to be very interesting to see which of those companies has the most successful strategy and I give a huge amount of credit to the environmental movement and the carbon divestment movement for forcing the hand of the big energy companies to start acting. Um, but, you know, the, the, the problem is, is that, like, you can be too early to a trade as well as too late to a trade, right? So just because you start acting, so again, I mean, the, the carbon divestment conversation is the classic one, right? I understand as an institutional investor, Well, institutional investors understand that over the long time, there is a huge amount of risk associated with fossil fuels. And, you know, I understand the whole stranded asset analysis. However, you know, the price of fossil fuel companies is far more affected by the price of oil, and nobody really knows what oil prices are going to go over the next 18 months. So to act too early, from a simplistic investment standpoint, you are not necessarily going to be rewarded. Similarly, when is the right time, from a financial standpoint, to invest in renewable energy, right? It's going to depend. So the the challenge is that so many of these things are complicated and so many of these things are unknown, and they force investors and other capital markets participants to act differently from how they have, have in the past. Because what we're effectively saying is we need to transition to a new form of economy and most of our ways of modelling and most of our ways of understanding what we do are backwards looking so it's yeah you know, it's complicated
1: i think that's fascinating because i think the new economy the new new economic model is, is something like we've been talking about you know the low carbon industrial complex or the zero carbon industrial complex right like how does the investment required become a mobilization on the scale you know people talk of mobilization on the scale of world war Two or something where every part of the economy is cranking towards this imperative to reduce carbon and that becomes just like there were drives for you know rubber or metals or something in world war Two, and everybody pitched in like how do we get to that level of, of intensity of effort which is effectively what's required you know a total global and national mobilization
2: and they say that's that's political right you have to create the political will and then and then by creating these opportunities investment dollars will move in and we we clearly are not at that point and that's why you're seeing investment happen but in an incremental way and not at the scale of sort of a a new deal
0: yeah, it, well, you know, David, you talk about this massive mobilization on the scale of a World War II. I mean, well, according to the International Energy Agency, three point five trillion dollars will need to be invested each year from now until twenty fifty in order to even have a hope of properly addressing global warming and climate change. How do you ensure that it's not just about market timing for investment returns when we're talking about the existential timing uh, of our society?
1: Indeed, indeed. You know, people poo-poo Paris or something because it wasn't even ambitious enough, or what have you. But what Paris represented was a collective expectation that there would be governmental action on climate change of some sort, and therefore, then as a as a company or as an investor, you would you know bake that into your analysis, and you would then invest appropriately. If the if the bed is now that there's not going to be effective global um, action and, and, and you're and you not going to pay any, any price on that, then you have a different investment calculation, like you're saying. So the signal for where the world is going is crucial. And that then becomes part of investor sentiment, which, as we said, is crucial. And so, you know, I would argue that we need to reinvigorate that, as you said, popular mobilization leading to government action. That's sort of obvious at some level. And so the question is, then, how do you do that? I, I think one of the failures uh, of 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 kind of, I don't know, can we say our side if I'm a journalist? One of the failures of the folks who want this mobilization to happen is that it gets framed as a high cost. Like you said, $3.5 trillion a year sounds a lot, but that first of all, in the scale of the capital markets, it's actually not that much. And second of all, see that as a huge opportunity that is the investment opportunity of the century of the, of a lifetime to rebuild the economy whenever when whenever there's an energy shift from one form to another you know somebody makes a ton of money And, you know, whether that's you or not, you know, you may, it may be an overinvestment in what have you and and prices do fall and whatnot. So there's not like there's not risk, but you do want to be on the right side of that transition. So what we need is the signal, the mobilization, the argument that it's a pro growth, pro jobs, pro prosperity agenda, you know, politicians need to take the leadership and then, you know, money has to move in a very fast way. And my last thing, I know this is long, I'm not supposed to have long answers. My last thing is that once those signals are lined up, the money can move very fast.
0: Right, so Imogen, I mean, I think David makes a very great point here that, you know, we first need that government action and we need to mobilize people to enable that government action. And, and as most... Uh, economists and policymakers in this space see it, that, that, that pricing carbon emissions is one of the kind of foremost requirements that governments need to do to create that enabling environment to unleash the you know, market forces uh, to uh, innovate and drive down the price of carbon uh, to, to bring down the emissions overall, I'm sorry, raise the price of carbon to bring down the emissions overall. But because this is such a tricky, wicked problem, that uh, climate change involves science and in, involves policy, it in, involves uh, sociology and, and mass psychology, and it involves uh, politics and uh, finance and everything else, You know, how do we uh, make sure that all the people who want to be active in this space are equipped to be active in the right ways? I mean, you've, you've often talked about uh, the fact that maybe uh, many environmentalists uh, would uh, would be more effective if they were more aware of how capital markets work, uh, so they can learn how to engage the capital markets in the right way. Uh, how, how do you see uh, environmentalists helping uh, their cause overall?
2: I, yeah, I do think that the environmental movement could benefit from being more financially literate. I think that um, in the past, historically, they've been very, very good at campaigning and awareness raising. They have been very poor at actually understanding the mechanisms of the capital markets and identifying effective financial solutions that can come at scale. So, for example, I was talking yesterday to someone who advises the Sierra Club and their foundation. And he was saying that they were trying to do all these shareholder engagement campaigns, trying to stop index funds, asking index funds to divest from fossil fuels. And he was like, you know, BlackRock can't do that. So you're asking for something that's impossible and ineffective. And I think that there is, in some ways, there has been a willful blindness because there is a sense from groups within the environmental movement that capitalism full stop is bad and therefore engaging with it is bad. And this is just really sort of a proxy war to beat up on fossil fuel companies but again in order for the shift to occur and in order for the markets and the mechanisms to exist we need to get better at this and we need to get more sophisticated at it and we need sort of an all hands on deck approach and the flip side right is that investors need to become more educated and more literate about climate change and not think of it as a political thing but think of it as a reality And arguably. You know, on both sides, changes are starting to happen. You are starting to see, you know, something like stuff like the rating agencies are kind of working more on climate risk. The mechanisms of the markets are trying to figure out what does climate risk look like? So it is starting to happen. But I think that what is absent is still the sense of urgency. I
1: would just jump in and say the sense of urgency is a leadership question and is a mobilization question, and therefore, I think the path to at least a shot at it um, is through, uh, there's an interesting timing thing which i'm sure is no accident which is that the us actually can't withdraw from paris until the day after the the new president is inaugurated the next the after the 2020 election so i think it's the it's january 21st i think 2021 and so it's basically all on the table in the us election um at some level and that is a function then of a mobilization here and that is a function i believe of of the of the of the jobs argument being corralled to the side of the low carbon future. And that, you know, there's there's various proposals. You know, the, the one that's getting a lot of attention now is the Green New Deal proposal. But I mean, they're all kind of moving in the same direction, which is corral that populist energy around jobs and growth to the climate action imperative.
2: I think that 2020 election is going to be key. There clearly will be a climate candidate. And I think it's worth keeping an eye on Mike Bloomberg to see if he decides to run or if he just decides to put his wealth behind a climate candidate or climate candidates.
0: I just think that the most successful candidate will one who will merge a populist message around being pro-people and pro-planet.
2: I I agree with you, but I think that, that both you and David oversimplify the jobs question. And I think that the elephant in the room here is organized labor. You can very clearly make the argument that there will there will be more jobs associated with the clean and renewable economy than there are with the fossil fuel economy. The problem is, is that they're different jobs, right? And so there there is a whole component of organized labor that relies on fossil fuel jobs, everything from like coal mining to truck driving, right? And so that has a huge impact in turn on the political landscape because organized labor still has a lot of power. And so, those voices which would typically be at the table of a discussion like this are at best absent and in some instances critical towards the, the very issues that we're trying to change. But there's
1: there's leader there's leaders and laggards on that as well. And so and so the unions, as you say, are gonna have to come to grips with this one way or the other, you know, sooner or later. And so again there will be unions that move into the green jobs world and, and try to make sure that there's you know good jobs and good benefits and 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 you know shared prosperity and those others as you say will resist but I mean that's just like every other institution.
0: I think I think that's right and I think in, in the same way that uh, the the winning political message will be one that fuses people and planet and the messaging around that. Uh, I also think that the winning investment strategy uh, we we talk a lot about ESG environmental social and governance investing as if that's a one cohesive strategy. Oftentimes uh, that's a catch-all for uh, very specific strategies. People kind of focus on maybe E, maybe G, maybe S, but very few are well equipped right now to uh, incorporate all uh, of those approaches uh, and integrate them. And
1: right, and there is a backlash. I mean, we you know we're seeing that in France now with the demonstrations, which you know have to do with fuel tax and and, and arguably climate. You know, we saw it in an election in the the board of um, the, of CalPERS in, in, in uh, uh, the big public sector union out here where an ESG candidate was defeated by somebody who said that she was uh, messing with their retirement security by, you know, caring about these climate and other issues. You know, so there is a backlash underway and it's being stoked, as, as we've said, by, you know, political interests as well. So it's not like it's going to be easy, but it's also like what Choice do we have? <laughs> right. So that that's where we get back to the optimism. We got to be optimists. so uh, that
2: is like pulling optimism out of the fire of like pessimism. <laughs> well,
1: it's, it's pulling. Polar- I will say that I will say, and we made her an agent of impact in one of our in our series the other day, or actually a few weeks ago, Christiana Figueres, who was the UN uh, official who sort of uh, helped corral the Paris Agreement into being or uh, is a, is another sort of self avowed optimist, and if everybody wants to just get a dose of optimism, they should they should se- seek out a, a YouTube video with her and and look at her exponential. Um, blueprint, in effect, for for getting there. So the flame should not die. There is still a plan and there is still a a way forward.
0: Well, as as we said at the top of the show, that all these different reports have made clear that climate change is already here. It's going to get worse. It's going to cost a lot. Yet, fundamentally, we can still do something about it. It's not too late. All the reports make clear that it's not too late. Uh, That doesn't mean we can be complacent, but action is still possible. We're still within uh, the window of opportunity to act. Imogen, final thoughts. Yeah, I'm,
1: not, <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I agree with that on the factual basis, but let's go with it for now.
2: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, to, to, to end on a pessimistic note, then, right? And to be fair, I do actually agree with David in that you do you you have to have optimism and you have to have hope, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't be realistic, right? And the, the effects of climate change are already clearly here. I mean, the the, the recent fires in California are just one example. with you know. Any day, you can see numerous effects that are already happening. So there is a clear question of sort of what more is it going to take to wake people up to this? You know, David, that's
1: very that's 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 downright existential. <laughs> and, I think, and I do think we're at, I do think we're at something of an existential moment. So um, let's uh, let's let the readers weigh in with the optimism or the the listeners, I guess we call them on
2: podcast. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, that's, that's a fair point. So, uh, listeners, uh, we, we leave it to you. Uh, so if you have thoughts about uh, what can be done to address uh, climate change, or if you have thoughts on the show, drop us an email at editor at dot com. And that's going to do it for this episode of Returns on Investment. Thanks to David Bank and Imogen Rose Smith. And special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. This podcast has been a production of Impact Alpha, providing news and insights for those working to build an inclusive and prosperous future. Find us at impactalpha.com and on Twitter at impactalpha. If you like this podcast, consider telling two other people about it. You can also leave a rating and review at Apple Podcasts. If you don't like the podcast, maybe keep it to yourself. Just kidding. We love your feedback. As I mentioned earlier, drop us an email at editor at impactalpha.com. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you in some sense of the word next time.